Murphy's Stout and leftover from uh, St. Patty's Day. Anyways, uh, the other thing that isn't quite up to uh, HR standards is the fact that Jimmy just kind of hangs around Lori's room a lot. Mrs. Alves keeps trying to chase him out of there. It takes her like four or five tries. That was really uncomfortable for me. Um, Yeah. I I never really understood like the basis of their relationship or their chemistry. Like to me, from what we glean, he just starts creeping on her hard. And she's like this traumatized victim of this horrible thing, like an hour ago. And he's like, totally, I wouldn't say he's like putting moves on her, but it's like, it's just kind of uncomfortable how he keeps puppy dogging around her. Yeah. He he immediately establishes that he likes her. Because Bud picks up on it, he's like, "Yeah, never get involved with a patient, la la." And so his expression of his interest in this girl who just survived a multiple homicide of her best friends getting murdered by an escaped lunatic, his response to the scenario is to come into her room and sit on her bed and poke at her and not leave, even when like the head of nursing is just like, "You have to go," and he just keeps coming back. I'm not sure that the movie remembers that according to this timeline, like her three friends were murdered like an hour ago because she seems fairly receptive to it. And I don't think that's just the drugs. Absolutely. I mean, the the direction was given to her. Oh, you're kind of into this guy. And Jamie Lee Curtis, like gamely acts it out. Yeah. Cause I, and obviously Jamie Lee Curtis, extraordinarily talented actress. So I, I don't think that it's a misread of the scene on her part by any stretch of the imagination. She's obviously been directed in this direction, so to speak. But it is weird if you think about it for like two fucking seconds. But you you understand that the movie is trying to establish at least some kind of love story. You know, at least the, the thin thread of a love story just so it has something like that in it somewhere. I mean, it, it would be well, it would be unfair to even call it a half ass love story though. It's like yeah, a yeah. one cheek, uh, a quarter cheek love story. Well again, in the spirit of doing the first movie but stupider, we wanna have an element of young love, young lust going on and it kind of makes sense with bud and the hot nurse but with Lori and and jimmy here it, it makes no it's like she or three friends were to murder an hour ago dude fucking leave her alone man and she's not acting like a person who's been through this meat grinder so it, it's it's a very strange scene i think that it just it stands in such relief against the first one where Again, when you're making a movie of this kind, you almost always have some kind of love story imposed upon the main character. And we have these vague things about, like, Ben Tramer and whatever else, because all they do is talk about boys. But there's nothing – you never even see Ben Tramer. Uh, And so to see it really forced upon this movie in this, like, this will be, you know, more successful commercially if there's a love story at the center of it, 
and you see how badly it fits on the backdrop that they have to work with. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think it, it more points out why the first one is so exceptional, because it doesn't do this to Laurie Strode in the way that they do in the sequel. In the course of this conversation that they have, he mentions Michael Myers by name. And it, it is, when I watched it again today, I'm like, that, that's actually kind of smart, because you realize for a second, oh, wait a minute, she really doesn't have any idea who this guy was. The extent of her knowledge would be when Loomis yells Michael, but no one's been around to give her any exposition whatsoever. And in, in, it's a little ham-fisted. We're trying to put this piece of information on her via Jimmy right here, but why would she know his name? Yeah, you do <laughs> so, see her kind of put some pieces together and associate it with the Myers house, which obviously, mm-hmm. you know, she visited earlier in the day and her father was trying to sell and she's familiar with that. So all of those pieces kind of click together in a very short period of time for for Lori. Um, yeah. But then, like, here's, the, here's another bigger Uber topic that is, uh, you know, has to be touched on. The idea that he has a specific targeting of her. We, we touched on this last time with the first movie, you know, as far as his actual behavior that night goes, it really seems like for a while he's following her around. And then when he finds more suitable targets, actual slutty girls, he locks in on them. And like the impression I got was that if she didn't thrust her face into the hornet's nest, and, like, go over there and get back on his radar, I had no reason to think that he was simply putting off dealing with her. I felt that he, it seemed pretty clear that he'd kind of forgotten about her because he spends a really long time uh, away from her. So, yes. Sorry, kudos for thrust her face in the hornet's nest. That's a powerful (laughs) metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) but this is of course the movie that establishes the idea that laurie strode is secretly michael myers sister yeah a fact that would go on to in in, at least to my mind bedevil this franchise for all along to to through uh zombies one and two well you like where, to use the term retcon mike and i think it's real clear that that's what this is that aspect became a huge angle of uh zombies movies uh and it kind of comes in and, and and obviously it circles back around to i mean h2o kind of touches on it but doesn't make that big of a deal out of it and this movie really i mean you want to talk about something that feels tacked on it, re- it really is. We, we get a couple of flashback scenes that are in and of themselves somewhat confusing. She actually says the words, why me? Why did this happen to me? But, you know, it's like you said, well, why did it happen to uh, Annie and... and uh, yeah, and Linda. <laughs> you can never remember poor Linda. Because it, uh, it's all the L, L names yeah. in that movie. Um, oh, yeah. I Remember, I, I narrowed down all of the names in that yeah, movie it's like are seven like of three them. letters. <laughs> like yeah, it's, most like of them are seven, L. <laughs> yeah. It's like seven L, L names in that movie. But yeah, I, I watch this movie once a year. I can't remember one of the major fucking characters. So it's like. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, to your point, the idea of that is that. There's nothing that she walked away from in that first film that would make her feel singled out. 
and they have they they do awkward back backflips in this film to get her to a place where she is certain it's all about her and he's going to come after her and of course it must be for some reason like you know they're being related when it's it's very much tacked on and yeah to be fair it's pretty tacked on in Empire Strikes Back too or uh, Return of yeah Jedi it's like but, no 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 uh, um. Oh yes, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, when yeah, we, yeah, when yeah. we actually get the revelation, but like uh, that, we have the the kiss in Empire Strikes Back and everything that like indicates clearly they were not thinking that they would be siblings. Uh, right. Unless Lucas is a lot weirder than we suspect. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> or no, it's Irving Kirshner directed it, but or but you he know did. what I mean. Yes, um, he did. At the end of the first movie, we very lightly touch on a supernatural element that this movie pushes out farther it never like i said never gives us that lightning bolt into the iron bar moment like with jason but it still becomes very very clear that loomis is correct this is a supernatural force in this guy and further movies kind of push out the druidic element the celtic magic element it's not my favorite thing but i understand it i don't mind it whereas with the whole laurie's my sister thing i've never liked it ever Ever. I've never liked it. And I, I think it's, it's my least favorite aspect of the franchise. It doesn't work in this movie. I can't think of another movie where it like really pays off or works in, in a way that makes the film, the, any given film better. Because I, I they had no relationship I, in the first place. You know? Right, exactly. And, and even the convoluted adopting, da, 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 it's a lot of business that doesn't pay off for anything. I, I think the one and only thing that it gives this movie is a motivation for Michael Myers to walk all the way across town to go after Lori. Well, yeah, but, I mean, in that way, it feels inevitable because otherwise, like, how do you how do you have a sequel, right? So, yeah, you yeah, want, you I, want him to have some reason to come after her. So yeah. they dreamt this up. I'm sorry. I think you're both forgetting. Jamie's psychic visions of Michael and Halloween part five. That's obviously what this is setting up. If we're <laughs> I know it's going to be fucking July before we get to that, but yeah. and remember, remember that we had this conversation because no, you're right. It's stupid. So. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Here's the thing is if you're do, including all of this business to uh, motivate Michael going all the way across town to go after Laurie Strode, you don't, need it because he is a psycho killer we can just say that he's so fucking nuts and evil especially if he's an evil entity in human form that he just feels that laurie's unfinished business and yeah. that's all. he's yeah. a completist that's all yeah. <laughs> he's a completist he's a completist yeah. i totally love that and also like she gave him a tussle like she fucked yeah. with him like you know i would understand that she made an impression that after yes. after you know stabbing him in with the the hanger and eluding him and you know generally being sort of pain in the ass that he might be like ah oh, you know I think I'm gonna I'm not letting that one off the hook right as, as, as final girls go she made an impression yeah <laughs> right I, I I maintain and we talked about this on on that show that. On a final girl scorecard, like her total would not be in the Hall of Fame. Um, she did not kick a serious measure of ass by any means, but she certainly, uh, you know, was annoying and stayed alive. So I'd buy it. Uh, annoying to him, I mean, I didn't call her annoying. Uh, well, I, uh, I love you, Jamie. I love you. 
<laughs> Similarly, in this movie, this poor character is given nothing to do but lie around in a hospital bed for the majority oh, of yeah, it. She's, uh, she's barely in the movie. That's a really good point. Extremely passive character in in this movie. If she does I, not add to her scorecard. Like, can you think of any like big clever wins for her for Lori in this movie? I I really I'm at a loss. Like she she gets one because she gets out of her room and hides before Michael gets there. Yeah, that was the. Be How about when she's out in the parking lot and she's hiding in the car and they are literally Loomis and the marshal and the nurse are pulling up a hundred feet away and suddenly she loses the ability to yell. She can't yeah. even call for help. She's yeah, crawling. She like, I know she's on some, she, fault, they, what's that? That's not her fault. That's not, a, that's not her failing as a... Oh, well, it's not exactly a badass. I mean, like, she's a blob of jelly for a lot of this movie. She's crawling around, totally incapacitated, and, like, okay, they stuck her with a needle at one point, but, like, you don't exactly get, you know, badass heroin points for the way she navigates this film. No, yeah, I, they, they, they they pump her full of sedatives, even though she specifically asks not to be, and uh, then she later has a quote unquote bad reaction. I, I there, there's some stupid shit that happens later on in, in this film. Oh, that and, would be the win, by the way, according to the synopsis that I have, and I didn't pick this up watching the movie, but her claiming that she got a had a bad reaction is like her being proactive and doing some stuff like to to escape to get away. It, Oh, she was pretending to do that. Yes, that's what they said. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. that makes that yeah. whole thing even stupider. Uh, but <laughs> well, anyway, backing up, we uh, we go back. We got Lori in her bed as she spends most of the movie, and uh, Mrs. Alves comes in, explains that they can't find her parents, and right in in the patient's room, right in front of her, picks up the the room phone right there. And can't get a signal out, apparently because Michael cut the lines, but you know, for the moment they're just assuming that it's technical difficulties beyond their control. So they go to the whiny nurse and the uh and the security guard. Where the security guard Mr. gets the Garrett. job. <laughs> apparently the husband of Mrs. Garrett from Facts of Life. <laughs> Uh, I like that it's Mrs. Alves. Like she's a head nurse, and her title is Mrs. Alves. Um, well, and yeah. He's Mr. Garrett. Like this was, yeah. I guess, the era when you just called like anyone over thirty Mr. or Mrs. No matter sure. what. Yeah. This scene plays out a little weird too because Mr. Garrett is going to go outside and look around and see what's going on. And apparently he needs to rope in whiny nurse to help him on the, on the CB radio and, and do nothing or the walkie-talkie. Because he hands her a walkie-talkie and says, I'll be back in five minutes. And he's literally like just going outside a door. And her job is to stand on the inside of this door and with the walkie-talkie in hand in case anything happens. And he goes outside, looks around. And several amusing things happen in the sequence. The first of them is he decides to look in the dumpster for reasons that I'm not absolutely sure what motivates him to look in that dumpster unless he knew that there was a cat in there waiting to (laughs) give the audience a cat jump scare. As soon as you see a cat jump out, you know that a a horror movie is just like, eh, whatever. He then notices that there's a door... And then lock has been knocked off. And what's interesting, 
What's amusing to me is apparently Michael Myers, he broke the lock with either his manly strength or else a rock or something, and then carefully replaced the broken lock onto the loop so it can be seen and found. (laughs) And so Garrett goes through the store. He goes into a spooky hallway. He sees a second door that also has a broken lock that has been carefully looped back into the, the lock thing. And he opens that door and he gets pounced on by a giant pile of boxes that wasn't stacked very well. He goes to a third door. There is a third broken lock (laughs) that has also been hooked helpfully into the little loop thing. So you can notice that he opens this one up and now it's more boxes, not quite so many to pounce on them, but after all of this kind of semi-dumb dumbness, I want to say, when he comes out of there, there's Michael Myers behind the door, and we get what is my personal favorite kill of this movie, which is the claw hammer to the head. Uh, I really like this claw hammer to the head. I think that the effect is really good. I like seeing Michael use a weapon that isn't a knife, and the sound effect of the claw hammer going into his skull is really gruesome. As much as I was rolling my eyes hard at these progressive series of broken locks, uh, it does pay off really well. Wow. Uh, Vic, what did you think of that? Because for me, I I was looking at my phone and whatnot, and I wasn't really that engaged by this whole sequence. What did you think of the kill? I might have been fading in and out of consciousness. I'm really having a fun (laughs) time with this for like... When you talk about like the dumpster and the cat and like I'm like, oh shit, I remember that. Yeah, the cat. <laughs> well, the good thing people are tuning into this podcast. Like yeah. you guys talk about how they didn't bother to watch a fucking movie. <laughs> That's a real I, thorough autopsy. Yeah, exactly. Thorough autopsy. Thorough. <laughs> yeah, we, we yeah, well Mike was doing the autopsy. We're getting a, a, a coke in the break room and smoking a roach. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was so bored. I I do remember the claw hammer to the head. It felt, even at the time, it had a very Friday the 13th kind of feel to it. Yes. Um, I don't see how you can't go with Death by Hot Tub. That seems like the... I'm with John on this. That's the the go-to in this one. Come on, Um, Mike. Come on. Well, the Death by Hot Tub feels a lot more Friday the 13th than the claw hammer. Uh, well, no, if know, this was a Friday the 13th movie, the claw hammer would have had, like, an extra five seconds on the end of it, where you mm-hmm. see, like, the claw kind of, like, dig in and out of the guy's head, mm-hmm. and he'd be like, uh, 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 and yeah, then, like, yeah. it, would, it would pull out, and there'd be, like, a spray of blood on the wall, and then you'd end the scene. You know, right, like, right. you would have really uh, savored it. I don't think this movie did it. It's just like, boom, it happens. All right, I see your point, Mike. But it's like, it's so quick. It kind of goes, it went right by me. I not only enjoy it, but I have a six degrees of separation to uh, movies involving Clawhammer murders. (laughs) That explains it. That explains it. While I was going to film school for my directing degree, my fine and pricey directing degree, I... Uh, there was a dude in my class and like my senior directing three, whatever the fuck it was class. And he wanted to do, uh, we had to do our, our final piece for, you know, whatever that class was. And, uh, he wanted to do a horror movie and he asked me to play the killer. And, uh, he's like, yeah, well, if he's got a knife and la la, 
I said, listen, man, I'll do this thing, but we got, we got to make it our own. We got to do our own thing. We've seen knives a million times. We've seen X, we've seen Y. He goes, well, what do you think? I'm like, I want a claw hammer, a claw hammer in each hand. I'm going to walk around and I'm going to beat people to death with claw hammers, one in each hand. So, <laughs> and that, that movie exists out there somewhere. We shot it. I watched it. And somewhere out there, I forgot. Oh, Jamie something. Jamie something. If you're listening to this, if you hear about it, I'd really like to watch the Clawhammer murder movie sometime. Okay, <laughs> put it on YouTube. We will link to it on something. We don't really have a web page, but we'll get one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a, we've got a rockin' Facebook page that well, even has a picture yeah. and a video on it. <laughs> it's, it's pretty badass. Hey. Yeah, so anyway, moving right along, uh, after poor Mr. Garrett uh, gets a claw hammer to the head, this is uh, a you know, common occupational hazard if you're a small-town hospital guy. So anyway, when, when he realizes that he, something spooky is going on, he tries to radio whiny nurse with the, with, with, with the walkie-talkie. Her name's Jill, by the way. Okay, all right. So... Poor Jill tells him as he's walking out the door, I don't know how to work this thing, which of course establishes for the audience that he's going to try to radio some, for some help and she's not going to be able to hear it because she doesn't know how to work this thing. And why she's there, why he enlisted her in the, in the first place, you know, the, the script, want, you know, the movie wants to give us this scenario where this guy is in trouble and can't get help, but it's kind of dopey the, how the entire thing is set up. Luckily, we've got that claw hammer in there, so it's not a complete waste of time. But now, what you're saying is there's no payoff at all with the walkie-talkies, correct? Yeah. No, I would say that the, the walkie-talkie is. The, the, the movie wants to create a scenario without figuring out a smart way to sell it, is what I'm trying to say. I wonder exactly how long she waits. How long does she play with that walkie-talkie? Because we, we just cut away, and then she's elsewhere. I wonder, did she wait for one minute? I actually Bye. think that is a deleted scene where you do see the tail end of her with the walkie, but um, sadly, yeah, there's no, there's still no payoff. She just like gets bored and walks away and puts it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Austin Powers scene when they all have the evil laugh and like, then it just sort of peters out and like, well, I, yeah. uh, let's get back uh, to work then. Eventually she pokes her head out the door. She's like, all right, Mr. Garrett, I have to go back to work now. And then just leaves. <laughs> He's like, okay, it's fine. I got a claw hammer on my head, but whatever. Very, very passive aggressive murder victim. So but, can uh, we get to Bud and Kara having sex in the therapy pool? Of can we please? Can we please get to Bud and Kara having sex? In well, we we should uh, make a quick whistle stop in the morgue because uh, we actually do see three men actually giving a loving autopsy to Ben Tramer's <laughs> body. You know what? If the three of us autopsied Ben <laughs> Traber, you know it would be loving. It really would. <laughs> We'd because... definitely be in jail. We, we, we would definitely be in trouble. <laughs> but <laughs> the established that he's been burned beyond recognition. The function of this entire subplot is, is to let the audience know that there are authority figures actively hunting for Michael, but they can't help Lori. Just like in the first movie. Yes. Just like in the first movie. Yeah, so it's uh, like... By the way, though, um, I, I guess that Ben Tramer is the exact same height and weight as Michael Myers because we have to go to the dental records to determine. They bring in a dentist 
to try to ascertain if this is actually Michael Myers. And that's how they realize that it's a, like a 17 year old boy instead of a 21 year old boy. Uh, right. Is, uh, the, uh, 21 or 22 is Michael's chronological age, but they're able to, yeah. to pin that down. And that's how mm-hmm. they determine that this is not in fact, Michael Myers. Yeah. Th- that's how Loomis talks. Uh, Super Dave into continuing the search for Michael Myers throughout the you know that this isn't this probably isn't him we should keep looking for him just just like the first movie where we have Loomis being like he's out there and the cop is like I don't know and get on two legs yeah it's like you it takes a lot of talking these cops of Haddonfield Illinois into doing their goddamn job I I like that they don't linger on like well who was this poor kid that we we kind of killed. Like, they're just like, all right, on to the job at hand. Let's go find Michael. <laughs> His parents are probably at the key party with uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. the Sprouts. <laughs> well, speak, speaking of key parties, uh, they get called away from this. They jump into the car because uh, the cops are at the Myers house. We loop back around to, you know, now, and this is actually like kind of a weird scene because the, the people of the town of Haddonfield have gathered to attack the house. Like, they're throwing rocks at the house. They're yelling at the house. I'm not sure what they expect to come out of this, but... I think weird is a charitable word for them. uh, Loomis points out, one of their own has been murdered. (laughs) That's not bad. You're you're good, too, uh, with your Loomis. (laughs) But yeah, I I found this scene utterly ludicrous. Like, I'm laughing out loud when I see this giant crowd of people swearing and throwing rocks at an empty house because somehow that's going to do something. This house that's been abandoned for 30 years, like that's, they're all motivated. Yeah. You know what we should do? We should go throw rocks at an abandoned house. Yeah. That'll show them. (laughs) Yeah. There's a germ of an interesting idea there uh, that Michael savagery brings out the savagery of the community. Mm -hmm. Their rage has to go somewhere. And even if it's as dumb as smashing the windows of an empty house, it's you know they have to do something. They have to yell at something. They're they're What's they're wild up. They're angry. There's just there's a psychic wound has been put on the community, and the community is reacting. And I, I think that, that that might be the the thread of the idea. The way it plays out is, yeah, it's like you said, it, it's it's kind of ludicrous. These are the people who set fire to Freddy Krueger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they just they don't have Freddy Krueger. They just have an empty house. I get the Jungian unconscious archetypes, like the sort of the discord that's going on in the collective unconscious and like that. There's definitely yeah. something that you could do with oh. this, but it plays out just silly. These are also the exact same people that when a panicked girl comes to their door, they turn off the lights and right. ignore her. Yeah. Uh, like so- I, was, I was thinking of that in the beginning of this film where suddenly like this is the same neighborhood, the same night. And suddenly we see all of these people like out on the street and reacting. And I was kind of thinking, where was this an hour ago? Like it seemed like this town was totally buttoned down and like doors locked and shut down for the evening like 10 minutes ago. And and now in this movie, everyone's like, oh, what's happening? And I'm going to come out of my house. And, you know, like it, it, it kind of counter balanced or like directly contrasted with the depiction of the neighborhood we saw. You know, what would have really played is at the very beginning of the movie, when Lewis comes out of the house, 
he realizes Michael has run away, and that dopey neighbor shows up, and he's like, uh, I'm sick to death these kids trick-or-treating and playing tricks. Instead of dumb lines, what if that guy had come running out, and he was like, hey, what's going on? I, some girl was screaming. I thought she was playing a Halloween trick, so I ignored her. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then Loomis, and then Loomis could be like, "There's a psycho. A guy just murdered like three of her friends. She barely escaped death herself. Call the police. Help me out. La la la. Those gunshots were bullets that went into the guy. Look, there's a giant blood thing in the shape of a man on the grass between us. <laughs> and then, and then the guy could go, "Oh my God, I am so sorry. I'm a complete piece of shit. I left to the wrong assumption. But what the fuck? It's Haddonfield. I don't think that it's." Psycho killer place. I think that's kids playing tricks place. They try to eat their cake and have their cake and eat it too. In the sense that like, on the <laughs> one hand, it's like nothing could ever happen here. It's so incalculable. And then they all go like Kitty Genovese where it's like, Oh, well, it's just another woman screaming in the middle of the night. You know, I'm not going to do anything. Uh, and those two things, that's a very uneasy combination. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, we're going to be completely unresponsive right up until we are. And then we're going to throw rocks at an empty house. And, right. Yeah. And then suddenly they're all like a mob, like attacking a building. It's just, it's ridiculous. That's maybe a powerful metaphor, right? Like we're all going to be unresponsive right up until something terrible happens. And then we're going to do something utterly ineffectual. That's true. Yeah. I mean, that is a pretty yeah. scathing cultural criticism that might yeah. not be. Utter, utter, utterly, Rosenthal was planning. I'm sure. Utter, <laughs> utterly ineffectual. That makes us feel better about ourselves. Yeah. It is the Facebook thoughts and prayers of Haddonfield, <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> Look at that. We've improved this scene just in the course of this conversation. <laughs> One quick sidebar. We come to Hot Nurse, right? And she's by herself, and the lights are out because it's a country hospital, and they've turned off the lights so the patients can sleep, which I totally buy. <laughs> Actually, and, no, there's a deleted scene of the power going out, but okay. <laughs> I, or no, it actually does because that's what Michael is doing fucking around the storage room. Right, I guess. right, exactly. Uh, anyway, a 21-year-old guy with the mentality of a 6-year-old boy has intimate knowledge of the infrastructure of telephone lines and electrical. He can drive, Mike. He can drive. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He, he, he went through an entire trade school. They had a trade school program. <laughs> At that mental hospital, there's like these, you know, this kid has to do something after we let him out. So anyway, uh, she gets startled by a buzzer. Uh, apparently, if you're a patient and you need help at, at night after they've turned off the lights so people can sleep, you hit a buzzer and a light goes off over your door and there's a loud buzz. And I, I think that and we get this two or three times in this movie. And I would say that this is this movie's telephone ring if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. In the first one, it's the loud, sudden telephone ring that we use as a cheap startle. And in this one, it's the patient call buzzer thing. But guess what? It's not a patient who needs help. It's Bud playing a Halloween trick of his own, a sexy Halloween trick. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's lying in bed, and when she comes over to see what the patient needs... He pounces on her and grabs her in a lustful manner. In the course of that conversation, uh, we established that they already have a relationship that she's not too thrilled with herself about. Because <laughs> uh, she's a winner. 
Yeah, she she knows that you know he's he's this goomba lump of shit, but she's fucking him anyways. Because the guy with the giant glasses on the football team is already taken. Oh, but no, it's like uh, they they're young adults. These people, they're not quite teens. They're they're like Michael's age, ironically enough. But they're young enough that they'll recognize Strode realty, but also Laurie Strode herself. Uh, By the way, for but, the record, uh, Kara struck me as mid thirties, but that's just my. Maybe. <laughs> uh, he talks her into the idea of going to uh, the therapy room to canoodle, even though she's in charge of making sure that children are not dying right. on her watch. Like she's the literally the only nurse in the in the baby ward. I do want to mention to point out that the fact that he's able to startle her by being in that bed means that she has no idea how many patients she has or which rooms they're in. Right, right yeah, yeah. She, she is like, hey, there's, there's a guy in the bed. He must be. Guy, yeah, that, that room, I don't know who the fuck's in there, but. This is a little reminiscent of the beginning of Friday 13th Part 4 mm-hmm. in the sense that when Jason is first brought to that morgue, we established that. We there's have, like, there's this, a Bud character in that movie. Yeah, there's there's this really obnoxious guy, and he's hitting on the girl who works there, and we think that he's just being a creep, and then, but in the midst of their interaction, it's revealed that they're already in a sexual relationship, and you go, oh, for, okay. For the I record, can't... I enjoyed the uh, jazzercise sequence yes. in, in that movie more than anything in this entire film. <laughs> Yeah, well, Friday the 13th Part 4 has jazzercise. This movie has a boiling hot tub. Six of one half of those and the other. It's a close <laughs> second, but yeah, that, that is a very similar dynamic. They strip down, they're in this tub, and apparently it was actually freezing cold, not hot, which is interesting as a production note. And apparently the girl had second thoughts about being nude um, day of shooting and frantic calls had to be made to her agent and her manager. And ultimately Rosenthal asked uh, the actor playing Bud to kind of talk her into it and show her that it's no big deal. And uh, he he did his game best and apparently it worked because she did uh, strip down and get into this freezing tub with him. Yeah, we do get full nude in this scenario, and Bud's man ass on top of that. And we have to wonder how many frantic calls agents that involves. Well, but, he, uh, he did make the comment that his uh, his his dick was approximately the size of a raisin in that cold tub. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, okay, you're telling me that I'm going to be doing a nude scene in this horror movie. Yes, 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 of course. Uh, but we're going to do it in this cold water, so when I step out, it's going to be completely turtled. And that is what's going to go on 2,500 screens across America and exist in this movie for all posterity. Well, I also like the wrinkle, <laughs> the layer to this, that like they, mm-hmm. that was the hot chick in his acting class. And mm-hmm. he's like, all right, I'm gonna, we're going to get naked together. And like that's how he put his foot forward, you know, so to speak. There's a nudity writer that the actor negotiates and signs. Back then? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, well, maybe, yeah, maybe. I, I, I think I, they got agreement, tacit agreement from her, at least tacit uh, in advance. I, I, 
I, I presume that she's SAG, and if she's SAG, uh, I, I don't know what the scenario was in 1981, but, uh, you know, for death metal, we had to get a nudie writer, so... In any event, Annie, she almost like, uh, shirked her duty. Which, uh, is a, which is a little surprising, because it's very clear that this entire sequence exists to shoehorn some TNA into the horror movie. At the same time, there was like, well, we have to top the first... You know, these our, our competition is putting full nude up there. And so if, if they're going to be gorier and full, full nude, then we have to be gorier and full nude as well. And she had to have known it at the top of being hired. It's like, you are the TNA character in our slasher movie. So it's like for you to get cold feet, literally in this case, you can't put a gun to her head and take her to set, but it's... I don't, uh, I don't think she said later, like, you know, 30 years later, God, I, I wish I hadn't been forced to do nudity in Halloween 2. Like, I, don't, <laughs> I think it's, it's all good. <laughs> right. So, anyway, when, when they're canoodling in, in the tub, and she's like, hey, it's too hot, can you go to her? And it's like, oh, it's cold out there. And uh, her read on the line, it can go, get real cold in here, too. It struck me as something that one of Lori's friends would have said, and and in that manner, it's one of the few hearkenings to the, the first movie that we it, have. It, it felt like a Deborah Hill line for like Linda or something. Absolutely. Yes, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. For uh, one brief moment, this this movie kind of lights up a little bit. And uh, I will tell you though, I dig his death, but with an asterisk. He gets out of the tub. He goes into the next room to futz with the settings on the heating in the hot tub. And she's got her back to that door. And it's got a frosted glass door. Through that frosted glass, you can see his shadow. And then the shadow of Michael Myers pounces on him and strangles him to death. And remember we were talking about in the first movie that he strangles a lot of people. I think he's the one character who he strangles in this one. I, I dig the way that it's shot. I dig the way that it's framed. I dig the way that uh, that's it's blocked because the, her, this dude who she was just canoodling with five seconds ago is getting murdered right behind her. If I have any quibble with it, it's that he dies really fast. Took a lot of doing to strangle Annie to death and then even finish her off with a knife. And with him, basically he gets throttled for about five good seconds and he just kind of falls down. But what does that lead to? Michael comes into the room and puts his hand on her shoulder. I remember the conversation that we had about the scene with Michael in the first one with the sheet over his head. Mm-hmm. Right, where he's playing Bob. Exactly. Yeah, in that film, the idea was that his voyeurism becomes is concentric. It's first he's driving by, then he gets out and he walks, then he's standing outside your window, then he's actually in the house but in the next room. Finally, he figures out a way to actually come into the room, but he's still voyeuristic. He's not re- he's not interacting with the scene per se. He's still watching in some creepy way but as closer and closer and closer and closer and here he actually finally gets to the the center of that concentric circle in that he actually touches the person that he's been watching and it actually puts his hands on her and she kisses his his giant dirty thing <laughs> his hands look like he got out of a coal mine those are the hands of harry from my bloody valentine <laughs> <laughs> Just like when he was playing Bob, he's non-responsive. It's like he, he keeps trying to see how close to the bug he can get with while well, the bug not noticing. And it's only because it's only when she looks up and realizes it's not Bud that he goes to work on her. And speaking of the bug thing, like he does the head tilt a couple times in this one also, 
the sort of like weird alien curiosity about things that he doesn't understand. Once with her, and then when Laurie says his name at the end. Right, right, exactly. This is one of those scenes that I recall pretty vividly, even from just her previous viewings of the movie. There's a reason that it stands out, and I think there's a juxtaposition, number one. Well, the, to me, the juxtaposition is between Bud's death, which, again, you're right, is really cool in the way that it's framed and filmed, and it's sort of upsetting. It, I agree it happens too fast. But it's pretty visually tame in spite of being cool for you know the, the these other sort of cinematic reasons and it's juxtaposed with this enormously violent death that has these this sort of other context to it i mean this is one of the standout scenes in the movie i really think oh yeah yeah when he does start dunking this poor promiscuous nurse cara in the boiling water and each time her face comes out of the water it's more disfigured uh, yeah, I mean, just conceptually, that's horrible. That's just very disturbing. And the makeup's not terrible when he finally drops her, you know, corpse and we see the extent of the damage to her face. It, it's still un- unsettling, but in my prepubescent mind, it was just, you know, really right up there in the most horrible kills that I, I could imagine at that time. And The peeling skin off the yeah. face. Peeling, like, lobster red flesh peeling off of someone's face is just a horrible thing. When we're talking about the first Halloween, you, you had mentioned that if you really look at the kills in turn, in, in across the grand scope of slasher movies, they're very tame. Mm-hmm. And we touch on the idea, well, it's like they're tame because the movies that led up to it, or, you know, Psycho, Black Christmas, they're not super gory. But here it's very, very clear that Halloween 2 is reacting to Friday the 13th and all the other slasher films that were upping the ante. I mean, it's a very clear... Like, oh shit, we've got to turn the gore knob up. And so this kind of thing would not exist at all in the first film. Poor Annie crossing her eyes is like the most <laughs> disturbing <laughs> yeah. thing. And Yeah, <laughs> where, where, where Vic and I are like, I think she gets stabbed. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't even 100% clear that she got her throat slit in that movie. Yeah. yeah. We go to Lori and she's having her flashbacks in which the movie is trying to establish her disjointed memories of being an adopted daughter. And, and, and we do see her mom. Her mom gets one scene in a flashback where she's hanging up laundry in the backyard. <laughs> and, and she bluntly tells her, you're not my daughter. It's like, okay, thank you. And <laughs> then we cut from that to the school with that funny procession of the broken window and the blood on the desk and then the giant knife. And it's like, okay, we're trying to establish the idea and then link one idea to the next idea. And then we have Sam Hain and blood on the chalkboard. It's not subtle, the way Michael Myers works. Uh, This is where we start to gear shift into one of the, I would say, top three or four clunky and stupid elements of the film as a whole, is this woman shows up out of nowhere doesn't give her name, but Luma says, oh, I didn't recognize you. Wait, they know apparently, apparently Mike didn't recognize her either. Why? Who is she? <laughs> She's in the first movie. <laughs> the nurse that he rides with? Yeah. Is what? that really? I didn't get that either. All right, guys, I'm not calling you out. Like, to be honest, it didn't really hit me watching the movie per se. I kind of thought 
But then once I looked at it, it's like, oh, yeah, same actress, same character name. Okay. I didn't take five seconds to pull it up on yeah. IMDb. Yeah. I, I, I just blithely went about watching the movie just going, who is this chick? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why she isn't more recognizable. But, yeah, that is the exact same woman that he's in the car with uh, in the first movie. If she had lit her cigarette with one of the... The same red, matchbook, yeah. Yeah, same matchbook from the sleazy dive, then well, I would have... Oh, yeah. It's funny because yeah. the actress like said the fact that she's a nurse who smokes is like her big character thing. That's what people remembered about her. And I guess like if they'd hit that beat a little harder, it might have resonated more. But yeah, that's like sort of the joke on, on that character is that she's a, a nurse who smokes. Yeah, so she tells him that there was a super, there was a secret file. He's like, there, there can't be any secret files. I saw everything about Michael Myers. I was this head psychiatrist for fifteen years. She goes, no, there was a super duper secret file <laughs> <laughs> that you didn't know about because there's a secret, and for reasons that make that no one has ever figured out or explained it whatsoever, the super duper secret file was to reveal that Laurie Strode is secretly Michael Myers' sister. Why that had to remain super duper secret, no idea. But the file has finally come to light due to an order from the governor. The governor of Illinois has heard about the three murders in Haddonfield, Illinois, and he said, and he pushed the giant red button. That says super duper secret file, and it's been released. Now, I'm from Illinois, and at that time, the governor would have been Jim Thompson. And he's actually, I looked him up, uh, and he's actually still alive. So what I'd like to do is, between now and when we do Halloween 3, I'd like to reach out and see if he can give a statement as to why he felt the need to release the super duper secret <laughs> or Michael Meyer file, which obviously you would remember because it was very important. But she uh, informs Loomis that there is a marshal waiting outside. It's so fucking serious that literally the governor of Illinois has been like, we're releasing the super duper file, secret file, and I need Loomis to go straight back to the hospital and sit there and do nothing. And this is so important to me that we have a marshal to go along with him to make absolutely sure that this happens. And uh, obviously this entire storyline do doesn't withhold scrutiny for more than two fucking seconds. But it's in the movie anyway. Yeah. Unless you take into consideration the whole Celtic conspiracy. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, yeah. Irish, yeah. Irish governor. All this bullshit right up to Halloween 666. Hey, man. Or the version that we never saw of that, anyway. You might, you might be onto something. I think uh, Jim Thompson is in the pocket of the evil Celtic guys <laughs> who set up the... Stonehenge thing in three. Yep. God damn. Oh, shit. Well, uh, he was known to be one of uh, Illinois' less corrupt governors, uh, but maybe he has dark skeletons in his closet. Well, uh, maybe, anyways, so. maybe he dyed that river black instead of green on St. Patrick's <gasps> Day. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, now we have the story. I, I think the idea is to just give Loomis some business besides just do the exact same thing in part one. And also to kind of link the exposition of Lori's secret background with Michael Myers with Loomis's arc, I um, guess. We also needed everyone's favorite eighth supporting character to come back. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that if I were to tilt my head to about 15 degrees to the right in a curious manner and squint really hard, I can kind of sort of see why this nonsense is in this movie. But, you know, so so be it. But what this translates into is uh, when we cut now, we're back in the hospital and we're with Lori in her bed and Jimmy comes a creeping once more. Even though he's been repeatedly chased out of this girl's room and, she, and it's late at night. The lights are out. She's supposed to be sleeping. She's sedated. What does this guy do? But he creeps into her fucking room like he's, I, 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 I what's the name of the vampire in Twilight? <laughs> Edward Cullen. <laughs> yeah. To watch her sleep, I guess, like a creep. And, uh, it's super it, creepy. It, in his defense, he's probably heard that Ben Tramer's dead. <laughs> oh. Clear sailing for me, man. Yeah. <laughs> the war for her heart has been reopened. So, <laughs> so. Suck it, Tramer. Yeah. <laughs> and it's here that he her, her eyes are wide open. She's laying in bed. She's staring at the ceiling. His assumption is that she has had a, an adverse reaction to the medication. I, uh, presumably, these characters should think on some level that she might be dying and or dead because they put a, a flashlight in her eye and there's no reaction. And, and I, I had no idea that she was faking it. I, I thought because she's so chemically fucked up for the, re, for the entire Act 3 chase scene, I thought that that was a reality. I had no idea that she was faking it here. Because there's nothing else to indicate it. Can I can I just point out one of one of my other intelligible notes in here is uh, fifty six minute in fifty six minutes in who is the protagonist? Mm, right. That's kind of my point. Is like we're getting to the place where like uh, where where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis wakes up and sort of becomes a character again, but mostly it, it's like. There's Jamie Lee Curtis, and here's uh, the other, you know, here's uh, uh, Dr. Loomis. Here's a bunch of cannon fodder, and we're going to watch them get dispatched, and then, okay, Jamie Lee Curtis wakes up again. Like, who is, if you guys had to nail it down, who would you say is the protagonist of this movie? Ben Tramer. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's firmly Loomis in this film. He has a battle on several fronts. He does make the ultimate sacrifice to defeat the villain. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is mostly a passive character throughout the narrative. Uh, it, it's pretty much Loomis's movie. So if that's the case, Loomis's story is the fucking B story. Yeah. Like, yes. you want to know why this movie slips from your memory, why I can't remember what the fuck is going on. All the beer had something to do with it, but there's a big part of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the idea that we don't really need a protagonist in a film, I mean, come on. That's um, yeah. it's it such is, a daring idea. It works yeah, so well. Yeah, it, it, it is a slasher movie in which our final girl is barely functional and has only tangential. I, I guess the internal arc would be her connection with Michael Myers, but even then it's it's, yeah, yeah. Well, you could uh, you could say. I mean, one of the criticisms often lobbed against the horror genre is that Michael Myers is the protagonist, and that's part of the the you know lack of redeeming qualities that these films have is that he's driving the story. It's his desires, his needs, it's his actions that that make everything happen. So, well, like technically speaking, he is the protagonist. Well, that's a really interesting idea because 
in, in a lot of ways, you're absolutely right. We show up to see these killers and to see what they're going to do. Yeah. But in every case, though, they're given a final girl with whom to match wits. And it, this movie is an early experiment in, okay, let, let's really put it to the test. Let's have the killer truly be the protagonist in which we totally follow him. He's the A story. He's driving the narrative, da 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 and our final girl is almost completely passive. What does that movie look like, and do we like it? And that's this movie, yep. and it is mostly dull. So, yes, we can say that the audience shows up for the killer, for the murders, but he needs the final girl foil for it to have the true energy of, of a good example of one of these films. And it's funny that, like, Jamie Lee fucking Curtis is the sidelined worthless you know actress that's being marginalized like it's not adrian king here you know like it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you're gonna take any one actress and be like okay your character is going to sleep in this bed for right. most of the movie most of the movie that's what you're gonna do it's like yeah like the, the yeah. most uh versatile celebrated talented pedigreed yeah. screen queen that we may ever have. And like, yeah, yeah she's the one that's totally on the sidelines. Yeah. It, it would be funny if like, like she, while she's lying there in bed, she looks over at Daniel day Lewis is in a coma. <laughs> and then Dana Carvey comes in and says, do you guys need anything to drink? Like, can I get you some chill out? <laughs> the whiny nurse goes looking for the drunk doctor because they need someone to help Lori with her quote unquote reactions to the medication. She goes to his office and uh, turn, turns him around and he has a syringe in his eye. And the movie likes the syringe in the eye so much mm-hmm. that it has Michael pop up behind her and put a syringe in her eye too. We're actually not, not, no, yeah, not in the eye. Like I, I, I've read people and they, they say, oh, well, you know, I think it was Ebert maybe. Like uh, yeah. they say that yes. she gets a syringe in the eye. No, it's clearly right above her eye. It's still awful, but like, no, he does not yeah. stick it right in her eye. He puts it into her temple in such a way that I guess you could say it goes into her eye from the side. Mm-hmm. But we're splitting uh, optical nerves. But uh, <laughs> be that as it may, Michael now arms himself with a scalpel. And... Of, of the many quibbles I have with this film, uh, I understand that it makes sense that a scalpel is a bladed weapon that we would use in a hospital setting, but it is not an imposing weapon. It's uh, when, when he's walking around, he's got this tiny little exacto knife thing in his hand. <laughs> it's not scary at all. He stalks around, and we come to, uh, I would say, the largest plot hole in the movie right here, because he gets this little scalpel, he goes to Jamie Lee Curtis's room. He knows exactly what room that she's in. Laurie Strode has now magically surmised that Michael Myers is in the hospital and is coming to get her. And she pulls the old Aragorn, <laughs> the pillows under the, the blanket, and Michael stabs him, and he's upset, and he goes looking for her again. And meanwhile, she's By the way, I up. just want to interject that, like, that was his outcome to all of this, is I'm just going to, like stab her sleeping body a few times and okay mission accomplished yeah i guess he will go home and lie down on the floor and stare at the ceiling yeah, yeah exactly it, the grand finale to everything he's been doing was just to you know stab her sleeping body a few times with a scalpel and then walk out the worst thing that can happen is a disappointment <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> well, I will say I thought that the impetus for her disappearing really went back to the phone line being dead. I mean, she, you know, she spends this whole movie, don't put me to sleep, don't make me to sleep, and then the phone line is dead, and I sort of thought that she put together from that something's wrong. I don't know, I don't remember exactly what happens in between that and this, but that was when, I remember when this happened, going, oh, I bet when the phone line was dead, because that was, the nurse was in her room, and was like, oh, that's weird. I, I feel like she might have surmised from that that it was time to, to start making an escape plan. Well, to be fair, in this movie, she's been pretty much certain all along that he's not dead and he's still coming for her. So. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yes, it doesn't come completely out of left field, but yeah, it's still pretty silly that he just steps pillows. This scene is the one beat in the entire movie where I, I, I kind of threw up my hands a little bit. I was like, come on, what? Are you Because you love the rest of it. <laughs> but like I said, my favorite aspects of this film are when our final girl is drugged up and wounded and she's uh, staggering down these hallways and she turns around and Michael Myers is slowly stalking through these benighted hospital hallways. It, it's a cool setup. It's a cool situation. It's a series of creepy visuals. And the score uh, is and, good. The score is good there. Yeah. And I yeah. want to say that... Um, I've always wondered, like, well, how much of this is Alan Howarth and how much of it is John Carpenter? And I just mm -hmm. found out tonight, you know, looking at these special features and whatnot, that for this movie, at least, Carpenter gave him, um, I think what he said was a 16 track of the music from the first movie. And then, like, that was pretty much it for Carpenter's involvement in the score. And then Howarth, like, started adding tracks to it, like, adding a uh, a beat and adding like a lot of layering and basically taking uh, a very super stripped down minimal minimalist uh, score and turning it into uh, what which is a a pretty effective horror movie score that we have here which is um, there's some elements in this that you hear in other carpenter films other scores that now mm -hmm. I can say oh that's that's Howarth so. Like, that guy, like, deserves a little bit of credit if you like the sort of electronic scores that Carpenter is famous for. It's very much yeah. the rest of this movie, where they, they took something that was really great, and they made it just a, just a little bit more terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. As we establish the beginning of what, in a stronger movie, would be the final chase, in which Michael is on her trail, She's staggering through the hallways. We get a lot of really cool shots of him moving through the hospital. She goes into, and this is completely indicative of the film as a whole, she evades him. She goes into a room. She tries a phone that, according to the logic that you guys have presented, she knows is already out. And then she shuts the door and she takes a nap. Just as we're truly paying off this relationship between these characters and what the movie is going to deliver, the, the protagonist, quote-unquote, our final girl like curls up and, and takes a little snooze. I thought she does so, that in the like, car. Does she does she nap twice? I don't think she naps, but it is once again she finds a little hole to kind of curl up into a fetal position and be dormant. But mm. uh, <laughs> yeah, but, I mean they do go to some lengths to set up like why our protagonist, if if you think she is the protagonist, will be mm. so diminished. But it just. It's just frustrating to watch her be like like a slug for half of this movie. Now, Loomis and Smoking Nurse get into this muscle car uh, with the Marshal. And this Marshal is the most chill fucking dude 
on the planet. He is completely without... He's more uh, like a rent-a-cop than a marshal. Yeah, yeah but they, she, we're, we're told that he's a marshal, but he is the most chill, laid-back dude in law enforcement history. I swear it's And some people might say that, no, he's a terrible actor. I would say, no, he is making an acting choice. He is, he's saying that this cop does not care about one fucking thing. Uh, I'll is, go with that. Uh, I'll go with that. Yeah, so because Michael cannot find... It, well, he's looking for Lori, but uh, after that, we get one of my favorite shots in this whole movie, and that is we have blonde nurse arrives on the scene. Oh no, goes, guys! I'm sorry, I have to correct the record. It's Jill who you're referring to. It was Janet who gets killed with the syringe. So I'm terribly uh, sorry. Yes, again, well, we've got J names this time. Like everybody, yeah. Jimmy, Janet, Jill. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So uh, Blonde Nurse comes in. She finds Garrett's hat. She's like, oh, well, that's weird. Camera moves down to a security monitor that's on a desk and foreground, and we see Michael Myers walking through the hallway in the security monitor, okay? He stops, goes into a room. Blonde Nurse comes back, and then she leaves frame, Camera goes back to the monitor, and we see her appear in the monitor and head for the room where Michael Myers is. This is kick-ass fucking horror directing, man. I mean, this is some really cool shit. You know? I, I did notice that. I, I did think it was cool that we see her traverse the same space in the same monitor that we just saw him in. It's not the scissors scene in, in fucking Exorcist 3, but I mean, if we're going to talk about like cool fucking shots in, in hospital-based horror movies, this is great stuff. I thought it was very clever. I just was able to decode the message, the note I wrote last night that says, <laughs> using security cams to make spatial connections. I get it now. Okay, yes, that's exactly the scene that I thought. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, cool. All right, thanks, guys. <laughs> now she runs she runs into Jimmy and Jimmy goes looking and uh, they decide to split up because that's always the best thing to do in horror film. And what happens is he goes into another room and he finds Mrs. Alves and she has been strapped to a gurney and exsanguinated. Uh, it's a weird, gruesome death, but of any death in this movie, I would say it's the le- it's the one that least feels like Michael Myers. Like exactly. I, I would give, it's way too complicated. It's way too. It doesn't feel like his mo in any way, shape, or form. No, but I, I mean, I would you give... could be interested in that. Like you could be like, well, why would he do that? And like that mm-hmm. could raise some questions that are worth like considering. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'll give it to Jigsaw. Mm-hmm. That's like a Jigsaw kill. But we get. One of my favorite scenes in this entire movie. You've got a lot of favorite scenes in this movie. Oh, dude. Well, that's that's the thing, man. It's like the shark bites a helicopter. It's a dumb movie, but the shark uh, bites a helicopter. I, I don't I don't know. What's what's the shark biting the helicopter in this movie? <laughs> this, is, this is the shark biting the helicopter. Yeah, because... because I, 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 plainly, this is my favorite scene in the movie. I despise all of these characters so much. Uh, J- Jimmy in particular, mm. because he, he's, he's noodly wimpy. I know where you're guy. going. Okay. okay. The fact that he goes to check on Mrs. Alvarez, turns around, slips in the gigantic pool of blood that he didn't notice, falls backward and conks his head. And it's like I laughed and laughed and yeah. laughed some more. And then I laugh some more on well, top of that. There's it, two ways to read this, and yeah. I, I give you, I'll give you that one of them is that that's kind of brilliant on some level to have like a horror movie 
where something so idiotic happens and the guy is basically dead. I mean, like, um, in this film, there's a, there's a cut of the film where we see him in the end and he survived his head injury and they, mm-hmm. they remove that. But, um, at the way that the film that we're presented when he is seen later and he passes out and his head hits the steering wheel, like it could be that he, he died, you know, that this, this ultimately proved to be a fatal head injury mm-hmm. um, that he suffered. So there's this bleak, uh, morbid, you know, humor to this that you could be charitably giving the film that much credit. But in this film, like, there's so little wit or cleverness or sense of humor of any kind that, like, I can't, I can't give it that read. Like, to me, it, it's, well, you, you did say unintentional comedy throughout this film. Okay, I'll give you that. It's unintentional comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the first movie, you can frequently see places where the movie is actively trying to be funny. The characters yeah. are trying to be funny. It's trying to be witty. It's trying to make us laugh. It's trying to engage us in a humorous manner. And this movie has none of that. No. But there are a lot of places where I'm laughing out loud at the movie just unintentionally. And Jimmy's situation here is definitely one of them. And I, I wish that his head had split open. He'd like <laughs> flat out died right here. I would love to have seen that. The idea that Michael Myers is so deadly that uh, that you can be caught in collateral damage around his kills <laughs> there's i there's two things i want to say about this number one is it re- reminded me um there's almost the exact same scene in uh bong joon ho's the host where there's kind of a very the very serious scene where everybody's in this quarantine in in uh again in south korea and there's guys in like the full-on you know biomedical suits with the hoods and it looks like outbreak and just randomly, one of the guys slips and falls behind him. Now, Bong Joon-ho does this stuff on purpose. He's very much about trying to mix genres, and he wants yeah. to be comedy and these sorts of things. And so it plays very differently there than it does here. Hard for me to believe that this isn't intentional, because it's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, man. are you saying it's hard for you to believe that it's unintentional? Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard for me to believe that this is not intentional. Yes. Okay, so you're saying this is the one part in the movie, this is the one part in the movie, Vic, where they're like, they show this, like, really wicked sense of humor. That's what you're saying? There's not a good explanation either way. I find that easier to believe than the alternative, which is that they, they did this, like a pratfall in the middle of this, and we're like, no, this plays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I feel like they were thinking... We need to get rid of this character for a while. We don't want to deal with him. Well, how about he slips in some blood and he'll be knocked Knock, out? Uh, and, yeah, because well, yeah. Yeah, they, they seem to really want to depower everyone so that they're not at 100% and they're going to be weak and like dazed and shit like that. Like That's what I thought they were doing. The second thing I want to bring up just really quickly is that consider this, John, that you just brought up that there was a deleted scene where we saw that he survived and God only knows what else. But like how little do they think of the characters that they just leave us like they leave it ambiguous as to whether or not the I'm going to say protagonist's love interest survived or not. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's telling. Right. 
It doesn't matter if Jimmy lived or died. <laughs> yeah, due to the plot, yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, Blonde Nurse uh, goes outside, and she realizes that all of the tires have been slashed off all of the cars in the entire place. So it's like, you know, the, the movie is actively checking boxes. It's knocking out characters. It's, uh, you know, Michael has been very, very thorough. Again, thinking about Michael, character. like, watching that mm-hmm. scene. Okay, here's the shot where we see Michael walk from car to car slashing all the tires do you buy yeah. that i personally yeah. i don't know yeah. no yeah so Lori gets up and she's walking out and she's walking down the hallway and blonde nurse returns and she goes Lori, and Lori turns to her keeps walking and the blonde nurse repeats herself she says Lori. Lori turns around and this time Michael Myers comes out and he stabs her in the back and lifts her up with one hand and it is a superhuman expression of strength. And I think that the movie is trying to give us a Bob's death moment. There's a beat in there where we get like a wide shot and we see her body suspended. And I, and obviously there's a rig there. It does look cool. By the way, she's actually wearing the same rig that Julie Andrews wore in Mary Poppins, the exact same harness. Wow. I kind of buy the physics of Bob's death way more than this one, just purely, and again, because that's a giant butcher knife that he gets nailed to a door. And with this one, it's it's like a tiny little scalpel that's like an inch long, and he still lifts her straight up. And her and the, the movie takes a moment to watch as her shoes fall off. And that I, I liked. I, 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 I agree. On the one hand, it makes me it made me laugh a little bit when it happened, but then I went back and watched it again because at the same time, it's it's also she's instantly become like a doll, like a piece of meat. Now she's a corpse. Her shoes fall off, and she's not going to do anything about it because now she's dead. Uh, it's it's a weird little detail to kind of grab a shot of. It definitely lands. It definitely is a punctuation, and apparently that was the costume director who came up with that. Hmm. So Michael goes in pursuit of Lori, and she runs down into the boiler room. He could get her at any time, at any time, if this dude decided to move more than three miles an hour. But he's got an MO, and he's sticking to it no matter what. So he gets her cornered, and she uh, finds a window to crawl through. And here, my friends, is the difference between American horror and Italian horror. In this movie, our heroine is being pursued by... Uh, killer, and she sees a little window to crawl through, and when she crawls through it, on the other side, there is an innocuous storage room. So there's, there's a, really not giant piles of barbed wire? Is no, that, is yes. That in, in, in Suspiria, in the exact same scenario, a killer is chasing a girl, and she escapes through a little window. She would fall in, inexplicably into a giant room full of barbed wire. Yeah, that's <laughs> the difference between American and Italian horror. Um, she gets to an elevator, and uh, again, Michael Myers is walking slow enough that she is able to get that door closed. Even when he jams a hand into the door, it is the one elevator door in the entire world that has failed OSHA's uh, <laughs> safety regulations and doesn't reopen if you stick your hand in there. Apparently, it's not the same hospital as uh, Reanimator. Mm-hmm. You know, the burn guy was able to get a hand in there, and the elevator opens up. But uh, That was thanks- only a few years later. Uh, I yeah, guess technology so, had really improved. 
uh, we cut back to Loomis and Smoking Nurse and the Marshal, and they're riding along in, in a ridiculous and clunky scene in a movie full of ridiculous and clunky scenes. The nurse out of you know kind of spills everything that's going on with the super duper file, secret file, and Loomis draws his gun and he threatens the Marshal, and he uh, he has the line, "You fire a warning shot." Isn't that what you fellas do? Uh, and By the way, he, uh, he uh, yeah, he shoots out the window, but he is a trigger-happy motherfucker. Like, always Loomis's first move is to pull that gun. He and the yeah. NRA would, would get along really well, because this, this man needs a concealed carry permit. He waves that thing around all fucking day. So the marshal is very uh, lackadaisical about this entire thing, right up until Loomis shoots out the window, and then we get an uh, you know, extreme wide shot of the car pulling a stuntman 180, an Immelman turn in the middle of nowhere, and they come back. So, By the way, that was probably Dick Warlock doing it, because he was also the stunt coordinator as well as the shape. So he probably yeah. did most of the stunt work in the film. Dick, get in that car. These three run back to the hospital, and Lori's there, and she squeaks at them. So wounded is she that she cannot get a scream out until they are firmly inside the hospital. And uh, she realizes that Michael... I hated that. I hated that. (sighs) So Michael is outside, and he's pursuing her. She runs to the door. Apparently, when these three went into this hospital, they locked the door behind them. (laughs) Yeah! Exactly! They They go into the hospital to save... Laurie Strode and locked the door behind them, I guess, to make sure that Michael Meyer doesn't sneak in behind them. Perhaps. Mm, Perhaps. Maybe. Okay. (sighs) But Laurie pounds on the door. They hear her. Michael walks through the glass door to get at her. And uh, I would say a very Terminator-esque beat. He is so implacable. He's so unstoppable that, you know, he'll walk through doors to get at her. Loomis puts the five remaining bullets in his gun into this guy. Eleven total bullets from Loomis' gun are in this yes. guy's body. And Loomis is a hell of a marksman. Not like Lori. Not like Lori. Every round goes in the center mass. There is actually a later shot where the r- little room where they're fighting Michael Myers, and uh, you can see the holes in the back of his, his gas station outfit. Mm. Mm-hmm. Or the jumpsuit. Yeah, his jumpsuit. It was his utility suit thing. By the so way, I, as a it, side note, when at the end of the film, when Warlock um, rapped, uh, he said, could I keep the jumpsuit and the, um, the scalpel and the mask? Uh, he was told by Deborah Hill, oh, yeah, we're never using this character again. You can have it. That's absolutely mm-hmm. hilarious. Uh, although, uh, one thing that they didn't have an eye for detail for is when Jimmy comes into the car, uh, he's not drenched in... Mrs. Alvis's blood anymore. <laughs> Apparently, he uh, woke up, changed his shirt, then went outside, got into the car. And of course, cars don't start because it's a horror movie. Oh, so uh, Loomis shoots him, and the marshal goes to check on him. Loomis says, Leave him alone. Don't touch him. He's not really dead. The marshal says, Okay, and steps away. The uh, he tells smoking nurse to go outside and use the radio from the car to send to send for help. The marshal complains that he is the only one who's authorized to use the radio. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. I'm the only one who's authorized to use the radio. 
And like somehow the, there's going to be some fucking red tape to deal yeah. with later about that. Yeah. Well, you know, when you when you called this in from this hospital where all these people are dead, you let the nurse use the radio. Uh, Marshall, the chief wants to see you, wants to talk to you about you letting that nurse use the radio. Uh, yeah. I, I guess it's... I guess the higher-ups don't like it. It's a problem. Uh, radio <laughs> protocol is something we take pretty serious around here, you know? So, so first the guy complains about the nurse using his radio without his authorization. Then what does he do after Loomis specifically warns him, don't touch that guy who I just shot. He's not dead. He's dangerous. He goes right the fuck back there. He's like a small child with there's a big red button. He can't help but dick around with it. And and at long and we get a Darwin test with this guy and he fails. He fails miserably cuz now now he's lost all authority to use the radio because now he's dead. Um the thing this guy didn't like make it to 2001 or 2002 when after 9/11 we started putting marshals on planes cuz I don't think he would have stopped anything. I used to rabidly hate this guy, uh, but now these days I've actually grown to a certain fondness for him. To be honest, uh, he's he's such a weird, specific character that uh, I, I, he he makes me laugh. And well, I yeah, appreciate- I mean, he definitely uh, sells it. You know, like he sells that he's a loser and an idiot, and he's not going to be anyone's hero. So I'll, yeah, give him, I'll give him credit for that. Um, but uh, so we reach the final climax of this film. Michael Myers gets up. He chases Lori and Loomis down the hall, and they get to the room where they keep all of the flammable gases. <laughs> and every hospital yeah. has a room like just loaded with tanks of oxygen yeah. and propane and. Loomis apparently hasn't been counting his rounds because he because he has an empty gun in his hand, but insists insists that Laurie showed this teenage girl take the loaded gun that he acquired from the marshal, and so he gives her the loaded gun. I, I again, the, the movie wants to give a beat to the yeah. character. Does it make does it make sense or not? No, I don't care. We're gonna make her do it. Anyways. Maybe they're realizing her final girl scorecard is weak at this yeah, point yeah. she's getting like and a I, c minus so they're like yeah. well what if she like nails two bullseyes like that'll that'll help that'll make her look yeah. cool or, or maybe it's jamie lee curse hanging around on set going you know guys my character doesn't do fucking anything in this movie. it's like why did you hire me to live with that two naps through this do you realize that they're two naps <laughs> i have napped twice in this film and i haven't yeah. put a dent in this killer yet give me something <laughs> throw me a bone it's like really first movie. for god's sake <laughs> knitting needle, coat hanger. This one, what do I get? I get naps. Loomis pulls the trigger on an empty pistol next to Michael Myers' head and is uh, dealt with accordingly. He, he gets, gets stabbed, stabbed in the gut uh, with a oh, scalpel, yeah. Yeah, so the scalpel, which can lift a grown woman up off the floor, suddenly, I, I guess he only rolled like one hit point of damage on his damage roll. He got a nat 20 crit on that on Blonders, but on Loomis, he's got a little more plot armor, so he's only wounded. It's funny, uh, like and, there, you could look at uh, horror movies like a role-playing game, because like, oh. the, the, the girl who gets pounced on, like, you know, she's being attacked by a, a, a lion in the savannah, like, well, that's because, you know, she has no defenses, but when you're attacking somebody the caliber of Loomis or Laurie, like, you're going to just kind of 
get sort of a, a glancing blow because they're they're badasses, you know. Well, you you guys may may or may not be surprised at all by the fact. Uh, a little my Kuchak trivia. I wrote not one but multiple horror role playing games when I was in junior high. Multiple horror role playing games. You know, that's a revelation that will stun me and it changes my perception of you like complete. Oh wait, no, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I have nerd cred on multiple levels. Like I, I have warehouses full of nerd cred. <laughs> I, I have warehouses, so many warehouses full of nerd cred that top men are still going through the, the <laughs> nerd cred. <laughs> top, top men. I, I'm picturing uh, an old man pushing a, a cart right now in a giant mm-hmm. warehouse. So yeah, yeah well, full of full of copies of the uh, horror role playing game that I wrote when I was in seventh grade. Lori Strode. Uh, I, and I'll give it to her. It's point blank range, but still, she puts uh, uh, two bullets, one through each eye, because the movie wants to blind Michael Myers mm-hmm. at the hands of its ostensible protagonist. She gets one win. She shoots him twice in the head. She puts two bullets into this guy's brain. And I, I think now is when, okay, this dude is really, really supernatural. <laughs> <laughs> he was only like. Kind of supernatural, but now well, he's really supernatural. Eleven bullets to center mass. You can kind of sort of squint and go, <laughs> he's really crazy. Maybe he's, he's wearing body really, armor. I and this guy walked through a glass door. He doesn't care. He got skull. He doesn't care. Maybe. but I mean, There is definitely an escalation to the headshot. I'll give you that. Yeah, two headshots. Right. One in each eye. Either the film is being very clear that he's a supernatural force or else it's just being completely fucking ludicrous at this point. And there's a 25, 75% chance of those two things. Uh, well, but you know where I stand on that one. Now that the killer is blinded, uh, they turn on all the gas and Loomis says, Jamie, uh, go run. And he gets out the little Bic lighter that I, I, I wonder, did he get that from smoking nurse? Mm, I don't know. Mm. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This there was, no, wait a minute. They actually set that up. There's a gag where – He uh, lights her cigarette? No. Gary, the blonde Super Dave cop, offers him a cigarette and hands him a lighter. Mm. I think that's where the lighter came from. So I, he stole a Super Dave's lighter. He committed theft against an officer of the law. You know, and that's really so luminous. <laughs> Do you know the whole thing in movies where – like they have the traditional, not the Bic lighter, but you know that like the big silver lighter with the hingey giant Zippo. Yeah, right. And and like if you just like spin that wheel and it lights, like you can throw that and it'll it'll stay lit. Is 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 that true? Well, that that is true. That yeah. is absolutely true. Okay. Yeah, those things are like mini gas grills, basically. In fact, B boy, you know B boy. I I do. He had a big Zeppo, and you have to reload that thing with uh, a thing of fluid. That's basically like lighter fluid, right? Butane? Actually, it is lighter fluid because you're, it's fluid that you put in a lighter. And um, <laughs> It's not just like it. It is it. But it is. And what he would do is he would douse his hand with that, and he would light it on fire because it's a very mild uh, accelerant, I guess you could say. And he would, he would stand there with his, his hand on fire because he thought it was funny. And they, then, then he would light a cigarette with the fire hand. Oh, that's so a good trick. Do. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, well, that's cool. you know. Anyway, so um, Loomis uh, realizes that you can't do that with a Zippo. With a Bic, you actually have to stand in the room and get blown up. 
mm. along with your gas. And uh, he does. And I, I don't remember. Does does he have a final line? He does. Smile, yeah. you son of a bitch. It's uh, it's time, Michael. Is his final line? Mm. It's time. So uh, they. But he explode. puts a weird Eastern European accent on it for some reason. <laughs> There's an explosion. There's a fire. Still, Michael Myers is not done. His flaming body still staggers. And it's a cool stunt. And it's a cool visual. Yeah. I'll hand the movie that. And again, at this point, if we're going to say that Michael Myers is a supernatural being or a, or a human being with a supernatural force inside of him in such a way that, you know, the only way to stop him is to completely dismantle the body in which the spirit resides, then blowing him up and saying, I'm a fire would do the trick. So... Mm-hmm. You know, if we're going to go with that mythology that isn't really spelled out, but is kind of implied, then okay, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, we're going to get to the bridge to how the fuck do we get um, the return of Michael Myers for uh, part four? And Loomis is back and he's got uh, burn scars on him and whatnot. And there's uh, Jamie, and, you know, so we're going to somehow rationalize how both of them get out of this. But this definitely has an air of finality to it, uh, no doubt. They're like, yeah, we're going to kill both these characters. That's going to be uh, – they right. already have – you know, it, it's like for, for one thing, they didn't want to do the fucking movie in the first place. Right. And you know, so it's like, all right, fine. Well, if we're going to do this movie, then we're going to make absolutely sure that we don't have to do any more of these goddamn movies because we didn't want to do this one. Let's like blow up both these characters. Yeah, Carpenter and Deborah Hill were 100 percent certain that they were killing both Loomis and Michael right here. Yeah. So, and then, uh, of course we, we wrap on uh denouement of, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is once again being led out of a building where a bunch of people have been murdered around her. And, uh, like a side character even mentions like, Oh shit, like there's like 10 people in there. And again, we see, you know, when we're talking about the first one and, and you had mentioned that the, the kills were, tame in comparison to a lot of slasher movies, especially Friday the 13th. Carpenter saw Friday the 13th. He's like, well, shit, we have to Tom Savini Halloween up. So the first one is we get three kind of tame deaths. In this one, we have 10 pretty gory deaths. So it's a very, very clear upping of the dial. The film, to its credit, again, ends on a pretty cool shot. A little while ago, I mentioned that there's this weird symmetry of her once again being loaded into an ambulance and being trucked off as she's like, don't put me to sleep. Uh, But we get the obligatory crane shot, which has to happen every time a character gets in an ambulance at the end of a movie. But it's a really foggy day. It's foggy to such a degree that I, I would be staggered if it was an effect. Right. Uh, it really feels like a happy accident. Like they came out to set and they're just like, oh shit, look at this kick-ass fog. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's definitely it's definitely cool. But, you know, overall, I, I just want to, like I'm thinking about where to put this movie compared to uh, Friday the 13th. And even though in general, like there's more class and pedigree and talent to these films so far, um, you know, taking us through Halloween one and Halloween two, like I think that any Friday the Thirteenth movie up until like Jason takes Manhattan type stuff are much, much, much better than this film. You know, like when I think about Part two, Part three, Part four, 
like just the suspense and the tension and the vitality of those films. Like this is this is a, a fucking snooze, you know? Like it's just a very muted and lifeless incarnation of something that I think that the Friday films just lapped, you know, even though they're not as classy, they're just like much more filled with, again, life, vitality, humor, sex, horror, you know, just visceral stuff that it might not be sophisticated, but like, I would, I would rather watch any given Friday, the 13th movie than Halloween too. I just, that's yeah. where I'm at. Yeah, there, there is a youthful energy to yeah. the better ones and kind of a coked out energy to the crazier ones, but it's still energy. They're they're even when they're terrible, they're still energetic. They're they're in every scene. It's like, can this be funny? Can be this be gross? Can this be da 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 da? And this is this Carpenter kind of stepped on his own supply to bring it in line with Friday Thirteenth and the other slashers and made a lesser movie for it. You can't turn Halloween into a Friday Thirteenth esque slasher without matching what makes those movies interesting and special. Too right. interesting and special are what we're we're looking for, and like Sleepaway Camp is more interesting and special yes. than this movie. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like in the pantheon of slashers, this doesn't have any kind of place for me. You know, like it's it's mediocre, and is it like embarrassingly bad? Hell no, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But pedestrian is a word that that Vic very aptly uh, you know used earlier, and. That's kind of where I stand with this. Still DP by by Dean Kundi. Oh yeah. Still it still looks good. Professional still, as hell. Yeah, it's still got some really cool moments. It's got some cool beats. It's got some cool ideas here and there. But yeah, I and overall, I would say a two star snooze fest is uh, how you would pitch this. Yep. Well, the good news is they learned all the lessons from this, and they really got everything back on track in Halloween Three. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, honestly, I am looking forward to Tom Atkins and Silver Shamrocks. Like, I, I, I half expect to fucking love watching that again. Halloween Three is very clearly a movie that they did want to make. Yeah, you know. So I will say one moment that I that I'm I'm uh, uh, able to decipher from my gibberish uh, that I I we didn't bring up is there's a shot when the nurse finds the drunk doctor with the syringe in his eye. And Michael sort of appears out of the darkness behind her. And that was one of the one moments that really felt like something that connected to the first film. And I was like, oh, that's a great shot. That was really creepy. Well, they just replicated the shot from the first one where he melts out of the darkness behind Jamie Lee Curtis. It's it's the one where that would have made Tarkovsky weep. And yeah, there's no, like, we, we, we liked it so much the first time, we'll just do it again. Exactly. But that's, But at least they executed it well. And it was effective. True. Um, I'm, like, cool. I'm, 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 unfortunately, I'm, I'm on Mike's side on that one. Like, I felt, oh, yeah, okay, well, you can do the same thing you did in the last movie. Great. Look, I'm trying to say something nice. All right? Forget <laughs> it. It's fucking terrible. Okay? <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's well executed. It's It's cool. But, like, again, we're just aping ourselves and... This was uh, this was fun though, guys. I'm glad we did this. Yes, but I'm always glad that we did. Chris had aped John Carpenter a little bit more periodically. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, guys. I'm uh, done. It's been fun, everyone. Uh, we'll be back before too long, and we're going to delve into the 
fabulous insanity that is Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Adios! Thank you.